Very good. Women in and of the church. So last time we were together in our context, we spoke about the idea of submission and we spoke about it through the ordinance that we find in the local church uh, in the days of Paul in 1 Corinthians, the ordinance that he had exhorted them unto in 1 Corinthians 11 that was the head covering. And Paul said that for this cause, women should have power, that word being exousia, authority on their heads because of the angels. So we talked through the idea of Submission. Of course, a woman doesn't have authority on her head through the head covering. She has, she has her authority over her head, right? She, uh, by putting that head covering on her head, made a symbolic gesture of the idea that she was under an authority, and that authority being in the church, being man. And so we talked through that. We talked through the idea of submission, uh, that submission is in alignment with and an acknowledgement of uh, uh, an authority that is over you. And um, that, that within the church, though we saw Paul saying uh, in, in verse, um, in the final, final verse there, uh, if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. So we saw within this that uh, Paul was laying down a, uh, Paul was expressing a custom, an ordinance, a tradition that was intended to reflect outwardly something which the church is required to have um, within its ranks or inwardly. And so Paul was not making a huge fuss necessarily about the actual ordinance of the head covering, much to the rather he was saying, he, he commended them. He said, it's good that you keep the ordinances that I commanded you. And then he was saying that um, as an expression of, uh, or the, that the head covering was intended to be an expression of submission. And the submission was the thing that he was particularly concerned about. Um, so we talked through that last time, explained it. Um, before we move on this week, anything on this, thoughts, questions, things that uh, maybe you pondered over throughout the week, things that came up that you'd like to share, um, a, a question that you had, anything before we move on from 1 Corinthians 11? Okay, so we talked about submission. The second topic, the second word we're going to talk about as we lay the context for a woman's role in the church is shamefacedness. And uh, this comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2, so we'll go ahead and start by reading uh, that again together. And then um, we'll go from there. So uh, I'm actually going to start at verse 1 because we are going to back up our context a little bit this evening. Uh, beyond just the command to women in order to gain a little bit more of a perspective. So he says in verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 2, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. This is why we pray for our leaders every Sunday, because this is one of the things that we are explicitly commanded in the scriptures to pray for, to pray for our leaders, to pray that God would send forth laborers into the harvest, <laughs> right? These are things that God explicitly calls us in the word of God to pray for. So we pray for kings and for all that are in authority over us. Um, in our translating that down, it would be the president and then those underneath him in authority, our governor, mayor, state and local legislatures, uh, federal, uh, excuse me, state and federal legislatures, uh, state and federal Congress and such. Um, judiciary as well. Uh, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who would have all men to be saved and account to the knowledge of the truth. Notice the connection there between praying for authorities and having all men to be saved. So what we're praying for is we're praying for our kings and for our, those in authority in order that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives is that they would fear God, right? Or they would have an acknowledgement of the truth. Fearing God is, is the least important part of that, uh, um, or, or the least that they can do. And then getting saved is, of course, the ideal. So God would have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Therefore, we pray for them that they would be saved uh, and that they would, of course, fear God. For there is one 
mediator, uh, one God, excuse me, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher, Paul writing here, and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity, that word meaning truth. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And this is actually where our context tonight begins. I will therefore, so speaking of this idea of men praying, of men praying for kings and, uh, and those in authority, uh, because, <clears throat> um, because there's only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So we pray to that God uh, and we pray uh, through that mediator who is Christ Jesus for those who are in authority that they might be saved and come to this knowledge of the truth. He says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting in like manner also. And notice that transition in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. So that will be our context this evening. And of course, we will come back to the rest of this uh, next time or perhaps this time if we fly through it. But probably next time, uh, calling the women to learn in silence with all subjection as silence will be the third word that we're going to consider in our context. So uh, Timothy chapter 2 verse 9, we see some words here and I'd like to first define them. Uh, we see this word adornment. Um, that women adorn themselves. So this word adorn here, uh, cosmeo, from which we get the word cosmetics, yes. Um, it's cosmeo. It means to put in proper order or to decorate. This is also actually the word from which we get the word world. Cosmos. And cosmeo is simply the, the verb form. So cosmos, meaning the world or the created order, the universe. That which was put into order is the universe. That's cosmos. Cosmeo, meaning to put into order in a more, uh, uh, in, in a more generalized way. So the adornment or... Uh, she would adorn herself, that she would uh, um, uh, um, put herself in proper order or adorn herself, decorate herself in that way, in modest apparel, cosmios. Uh, this is the word orderly. So the idea of, of modest in this is not actually the idea of, uh, that we, uh, is not the word that we would typically use when we would think of the word modest. We'll talk more about modest the word that we would actually typically use to, to uh, express modesty would be the word used here, shamefacedness. Shamefacedness is actually what we are thinking of when we think of the word modest as our English definition or our English dictionary would describe the word modest. But in here, modest, as is, um, as is described in the King James, is orderly. And then apparel being dress or deportment, katastole. So we have here the idea not just of dress, but really of how you present yourself is the idea here. So women adorn themselves in orderly adornment or, or with an orderly presentation is the idea there. That things are, that, that things are orderly in their proper place with shamefacedness, that word literally meaning bashful or reverent, shamefacedness and sobriety, self-control, soundness of mind. And uh, that's actually, uh, well, never mind. Um, so, so shamefacedness, meaning bashful or reverent, the idea there uh, that we would typically actually say is so we make a distinction at Legacy Baptist Church between the idea of modesty and the idea of decency. And this is not something that most people do. Usually when you hear something is not modest, well, let me ask you, if, if, if we say something is not modest, what generally are we saying if we say something is not modest? What comes, what, what, what comes naturally to the mind of a person if you say, what that person is wearing is not modest. Showing too much skin. Showing too much skin. 
That's, that's, that's typically the way we, right? Too tight, too short, too revealing, not modest. However, the word modest in the English language actually reflects a little bit of a different idea. The idea of modesty is drawing attention, uh, is, is, is not drawing attention to yourself. To be immodest is actually to draw attention to yourself. Now, if something's too, t- too, too tight, too short, too, too revealing, you are drawing attention to yourself. But there's a tremendous uh, amount of things other than just too revealing that actually are also drawing attention to yourself. What else would you think, and not just, not just with, with uh, women's clothing... But what else in the assembly could you do that would be immodest? Alethea? Yeah. So if somebody comes in, if I came in dressed in a tuxedo with diamond cufflinks and a cravat, okay? Not only would I look ridiculous, but I would be obviously, I would obviously stand out. Now, it may not be too tight, may not be revealing, but it would obviously stand out. Now, if I came from another country and I wore my native country garb, I would obviously stand out, but my, I, I, I would not necessarily be intending to, to, distract or to draw attention to myself, but I would yet be drawing attention to myself. So we may call that inadvertent immodesty in one sense. And that, that kind of immodesty we might look at and say, hey, that's wonderful. Yep, you, you definitely stick out, but you are, you're, you're doing what you do and that's fine. But if somebody comes to church in a manner, deporting themselves in a manner explicitly to draw attention to themselves, this is immodest. Other examples. What else? So we have um, um, Alethea said, so dressed maybe too fancy. Um, Andrea? Good. So there, there are, so in the, the sense of modesty, something could be immodest in a church setting that wouldn't be immodest in some other group setting, or immodest in a group setting that wouldn't be immodest in a non-group setting, uh, or a personal setting. Um, outside of clothing, the manner in which one does their hair for those of you that, that are privileged to have hair. Uh, the color of your hair. We live in a society where you can make your hair any color you want. If, you're, if you come in with uh, you know, green and purple hair, um, it's not necessarily... Um, it's not going to be more revealing. It might be... Uh, you know, it might be offensive to some in other ways, but it is most certainly drawing attention to yourself, isn't it? Um, you, don't, you don't make your hair unnatural colors unless you're trying to draw attention to yourself. What else? Other examples? Andrew? Yep. Yeah. So the manner in which you you carry yourself. Um, so so Andrea said posture. She said facial expressions. Um, um, so there is a you you can be you can be dressed entirely unremarkably, but you can carry yourself in a manner that is 
seductive. You can carry yourself in a manner that is um, flamboyant. You can carry yourself in a manner that is, um, we'll, we'll use the word loud, not necessarily audibly, but you can carry yourself in a manner that draws attention to yourself. Um, the, the, this uh, is, is a struggle for both sexes, but um, uh, children are very good at drawing attention to themselves in action, aren't they? Jumping around, getting between you and the person you're talking to, um, uh, ways to draw attention to themselves, even through their behavior, right? Misbehaving is one of the ways that children might draw attention to themselves. Uh, facial expressions, children like to do that to draw attention to themselves. And uh, as adults, we're just more refined children, right? So we do the same thing, only we'll do it in a manner that's maybe less, less obvious, but still perhaps there. And so, um, yes, all, all, other, all of these ways that you can draw, t- be, be seeking to draw attention to yourself, or, or maybe even inadvertently again. And some people, when it's inadvertent, uh, it's inadvertent because that is them. For some, they just don't, don't realize that this is something that is inappropriate because you're drawing attention to yourself in ways that maybe, maybe they hadn't even thought. Um, and where if we go back to kind of the weaker brethren principle that we talked about for many months where you sit someone down and you say have you thought have you thought about that maybe the thing that you're doing or wearing or um, the the um, even even the way you talk you know um, some people talk very loud Uh, by nature some people talk very loud because they want to be heard right Um, and all of those things can become immodesty in the more general idea of immodesty. And that would, most of that would, would reflect upon this idea of shamefacedness. That, that, that idea of, of um, a, a bashfulness or a reverence. That, that you are not here to become the center of attention. That is the idea of shamefacedness. So then, as a subset of that, we would use the word decency. I use the word decency, at least. You don't, you, you don't have to. This is, this is the way I, I break it up. And decency is what most people would call modesty in my mind. That's where it's revealing. It's too short, too tight, too, too revealing. And that idea is, yes, it's, 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 you can be, you, you can't really be indecent without being immodest. Because you're inherently drawing attention to yourself. But you can be immodest without being indecent. And an argument could be made you can be indecent without being immodest in a society that's just so calloused to indecency that it's not even remarkable anymore when a person is indecent. Um, But that's kind of another thing altogether. Um, And the why I like to break it up that way is because when we look at what we find here in 1 Timothy, adorn yourselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, and then notice the examples. He doesn't say too short, too tight, too revealing. He says, broidered hair, gold, pearls, costly array. He's talking about the women who come into the church dressed to the nines with their wealthiest stuff, their richest stuff, their most expensive stuff, and, and struts their stuff, revealing, expressing their wealth among the body, making all of the other women feel very, very bad that they don't have what she has, that they can't have what she has, and thus placing herself in the hierarchy of comparison among the women of the church. And we're, I got a little bit ahead of myself there in that. But that's the idea. And that's the, thus the example. Now, why this example? Well, it's probably something having to do with Corinth itself. If Paul were talking in, in Ephesus, maybe in Ephesus the issue would have been more too tight, 
too short because Ephesus was the place where the Temple of Diana was, which means it was a, a, a hub of immorality in the real, really the entire Roman Empire. So maybe in Ephesus, when Paul was writing about modesty, shamefacedness, and sobriety, he would not have said not with broidered hair. Maybe he would have said with, with a certain type of clothing or not with a certain type of clothing or not with a certain... You know, maybe in Ephesus. That's still definitely a shamefacedness and sobriety issue. But there's other shamefacedness and sobriety issues at play. And in Corinth, Paul is particularly focusing in on... Oh, this is not Corinthians, though. This is t- Timothy. So, um, uh, so, so maybe not. Uh, I'm, I'm, there's, there's two passages that talk about modesty. Is the other one in Corinthians? Is that why that's on my mind? Let's see. No, it looks like the other one's in, uh, I guess it's Peter. Yeah, so Peter talks about it too, the plating of hair, the wearing of gold, the putting on of apparel. Um, yeah, so never mind. Not a Corinthians thing. Uh, talking to Timothy, Timothy being a pastor, exhorting him. And um, as a matter of fact, he may very well have even been in Ephesus at that time. Was Timothy in Ephesus in the first one? Uh, That'd be ironic, wouldn't it? Doesn't he say, I left thee in Ephesus at the beginning? As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus. So so forget my example altogether. Uh, he, may, he may very well have been in Ephesus, and if he was, then he was still exhorting him to brighter hair and, and, and such. Um, wearing of pearls and costly array. So, uh, but, but, but one way or the other, there's other elements of shamefacedness and sobriety other than that, but this is the one that we see here. Thoughts about that? Modesty, decency, uh, parsing those out. Um, other examples that are worth mentioning, um, perhaps without... without um, Getting too close to home. Examples of this that you've experienced in the past. Things that have concerned you. Bill? Um, about the idea of humor. And uh, what we should laugh at. And uh, what we should laugh at. Uh, you Yeah, and we, we see in, in Ephesians the warning against coarse and foolish jest. And, um, and that is, the, however, for, for men. Now, men's modesty issues are different than women's modesty issues. It doesn't mean that there's not overlap. As a general rule, women will have more of a modesty issue. Women's modesty issues are significantly more around appearance. And men's modesty issues are significantly more around behavior. And the reason why is because men are drawn to women's appearance and women are more drawn to men's behavior. And because of that, there is this this natural inclination. So with men, something like coarse humor would be a way that he might draw attention to himself. Um, And and, and I know I use this example every time, but you can see this, uh, especially in, in, in men, you can see their immodesty really come out clearly in young boys. Where... If you see a, a young boy around a girl, he's going to act very different. It's not just young boys, but, but when you see men around women, when you see boys around girls, they act very differently. Now, with little boys, they tend to go goofy, right? They st- because they've got to get a laugh out of that girl. I remember uh, the first, one of the first times I taught this many years ago. Right after that, we went, we, uh, went and we traveled down to Atlanta. And my twins were very young then. And they have some cousins, boy cousins, who are a couple of years older, probably, I think four years and two years older uh, than they are. And we got there and um, we you know, sat the girls down in the living area and the boys just started going nuts, S- spinning around, jumping on their heads, doing anything they could to get the girls to laugh because that's what boys do. They got to impress the girls. And as it gets older, right, then it becomes um, strong, wealthy, right? So, so it becomes king of the hill, and then it becomes who's got the best job, right? Nicest car, whatever it might be, right? And, 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 and naturally, because women are, are, are drawn to who can provide a good home, uh, take care of me, those sorts of things, right? 
Whereas with men, men are drawn to female appearance. And so women are more predisposed to be immodest in appearance because that's what is attractive. Now, at the same time, we see the same thing among men and men and women and women, right? Where men want to dominate one another and women want to dominate one another too. Men will do it in action. Women will do it in appearance, general rule, which is where this comes in. The plating of hair, the wearing of gold, all the wearing of pearls, those sorts of things. Uh, because that is just, it's just how God wired us. And so we each have our own way of guarding ourselves against our own immodesties. And then, of course, women, you're not just guarding yourself against your immodesties toward other women, but also the manner in which you guard yourself in order to not cause a problem for the men in the assembly. And, and you're going to guard yourself against the immodesties toward men and toward women so that you're guarding uh, those in the assembly against your immodesties as well. Um, so, so those are the general manifestations. Yeah, it's a really good point that really until, until historically, relatively recently, um, dress was, well, in a subsistence living culture, there's not a lot of variation in dress. The, only, the variation in dress has always been among the wealthy. And, um, and it's been, you know, well, I guess maybe Victorian England was when that really started to become a, a thing, um, and they were still upper class, really, in Victorian England. It wasn't until the, the, the huge advances of the past century or so that everyone has been able to have such wealth to be able to vary in, in such ways. But in a subsistence living culture, you're right, all the women are going to, and men generally are going to be dressed very, very similarly as it re would relate to, to those things. And then, of course, in, in, in a culture that was significantly more... Um, well, I mean, depending on how you want to say it, male-dominated, uh, more um, uh, um, more structured, whatever you want to say, uh, women would not be, you know, could not wear what they wear today in any way, shape, or form, right? Um, and so these would have been the way that they would have set themselves apart, which, which is very true. Uh, in that particular culture, significantly more with the broidered hair, the gold, the pearls, the costly array, than it would be necessarily um, other variations. Other thoughts on this? Sam? Yeah, and in the assembly, as we've seen in 1 John so clearly, the assembly is about one another, not about yourself, right? And that's really the bottom line theme here, is that, is Paul saying, you know, women in your adornment, don't make it about you. Don't make it about you and how you dress in your accessories, in your, 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 your deportment, in your manner, in your, in, 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 don't make it about you. 
And uh, it, it, it is not difficult for humans to make it about them. It's not difficult to work up this kind of jealousy or uh, comparisons. It's not hard to do that. And we do need to be careful about such things. Uh, and, and you say, well, that's not fair. If, if, I have, if I have this, and it's not, again, it's not wrong to be wealthy. You, you're meaning I can't wear it to church? Well, can't's a funny word, isn't it? Because no one in here is telling anyone what to wear. But the question is, ought you to wear it to church? Right? Because the highest right, the highest rights that we have, the highest calling that we have, the high, highest law, this is what we said in our, our, our other series, the highest law is not your personal rights. The highest law is love one another. Your personal rights, very important. It's good. You have freedom. You have liberty. God has given you those things. But you know what's higher than that? Your brother. And as Paul makes very clear, that doesn't mean you have to give up wholesale those things that you have every right within grace to do, but just regard your brother in how you go about wearing that, living that, acting that out. Just regard those that are around you and love them. And that's what the assembly is supposed to be about. And so, so the debate is not can you, can't you. You know, can you not uh, um, wear gold or pearls? Can you not have those things? No, you can have those things. There's a, there's a place for those things. If you can afford those things and you're not being you know, um, a poor steward of your money and those sorts of, uh, those sorts of elements. Lo- lots of things go into whether or not we should have lavish things, right? But particularly in our society, that which used to be very upper crust, you know, is not so much anymore. It's still kind of a hard thing. You know, Missionary George was here on, on, on Sunday. And even though I'm of that generation, still one of those things where I become self-conscious when a, when, when, when a, a minister has high technology, even though I'm one of those. Because it's like, wow, that's a lot of nice tech that you've got there. That, Typically a lot of money, right? So you've got the iPad in the back and the iPad in the front and, the, and, and you've got all of those, those pieces of tech. And yeah, that's, that's, but, but here's the thing. Those are 100% accessible to even lower middle class today. Whether that's buying it used or whether that's getting it on sale or whatever it might be or, or even just saving up your money. Those things are entirely accessible today where it's not a lavish tech item. It may not be the way other people prioritize to spend their money, but uh, you know, may, maybe some guy's spending it more on rods and reels and whatever else. Uh, and another guy's spending it on, on, on iPads and, 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 and you know, smartwatches. But one way or another, these things are not inaccessible to our class. But there is still a case to be made for how much are we going to bring certain things into the assembly, right? And that will be culturally dependent. Um, that will be uh, um, context dependent. That, there's a lot of things that will play in there. And so we just want to be aware that we're not in a situation where we are, as it were, Drawing attention or encouraging or inviting even a kind of comparison system whereby I have and you don't. Let me show you what I've got type idea. Yes. And uh, something that I've noticed in the various missions work around the world, either in Ukraine or Mexico, uh, that people outside of the U.S. tend to speak in a much softer way. Uh, there's the picture, the, the stereotype of the loud American. Yep. That's very true. Very much. And it's interesting that he, having grown up in Argentina, probably picked quite a bit of that up. Yep.
Yep. And, and not so much with decency, although there will be different lines in different places, but with modesty, that will change culture to culture. Um, what, you know, what does it look like to draw attention to yourself, and what does it look like to not in any given culture? Andrea. Mm-hmm. Right, and that, that would be, uh, you know, at least, I mean, you know, certainly we talk, about, we talk about cultural things and then immodesty, and it would definitely draw attention. If it, well, I mean, I, guess, I don't know. I was going to say my kids run around without shoes at church. <laughs> but uh, we try to at least make sure they have socks on. Uh, yes, but, you know, di- different ideas, and, and these things will come into play where what we do is we elevate the brethren, we elevate the needs of others above ourselves. We subordinate our rights to the law of love. And modesty is another area where that comes into play. Decency is kind of a, a more across-the-board thing, right? Uh, decency is not so contingent upon context as a general rule. There are some contexts where we, we might, might have a debate about whether you know, a group of, of boys can take their you know, shirts off to swim in a certain setting and maybe not in another setting or whatever it might be, um, where we could say indecent among the ladies, but maybe not indecent among the men. Uh, those, those sorts of debates can be had um, among different groups, again, different cultures and whatever else, as far as what is decent. Um, certain uh, cultures certainly have decency standards that others do not as well, uh, where people would be scandalized by certain things in certain cultures. Um, but modesty is significantly more flexible going from group to group. The, the, the what draws attention to me and what does not. Decency is maybe a little bit less so. Okay, anything else on that? Well, we might even not, not even quite finish this tonight, but um, I say here contrast. Now, notice what where this starts. He says, "I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also." So we see a comparison here between men and women, and there's a comparison between something that men are doing and then something that women are doing. And this comparison actually gives us a help here, specifically the contrast. So in First Peter cha- or First Timothy chapter two, verse eight, "I will therefore that men." Pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. So we have here that men pray, prosukamai, to pray to God everywhere, literally, and pantipatapo, in all or every place. So pray everywhere, in every place. So we are talking locality here. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that the men of the church are supposed to go from place to place to place praying, but more so probably everywhere that, I'm, everywhere that you go, I would that men be praying. So Timothy, of course, was kind of a traveling minister, right? So in every place you go, I would that men pray. And it's uh, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, once again here, we seem to have, I believe we have, a bit of a contrast. There's a couple of different possibilities here. Let's think through them. Without wrath. Uh, this is the word orge. It is the word for, um, for anger, but not just anger in any sort of idea, but passionate anger. So it's, it's generally, that's why they use the word wrath. It's the idea of your passion getting the best of you. That kind of bubbling over of anger. Not so much the calculated righteous indignation of one who sees uh, an offense and, 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 and is welled up with a, a natural uh, indignation against such thing. But this is like the bubbling over uh, response, response sort of anger. Violent passion uh, would, would fall into there as well. Um, so generally, the word is actually not, not directly keyed into anger in the, in the Greek. It's actually just the idea of passion. But in the New Testament, it's exclusively anger. So if you were to go to classical Greek writings, uh, Homer and um, Plato and Aristotle, you might see orge used in a, di- in a bit of a, uh, 
a more a broad way, not just anger, but other sort of uh, uninhibited passions or overflowing passions uh, for love or for other things. But in, in the New Testament, anger every time. So we, we're, we're, pretty, we're pretty safe in that idea without wrath. So, so this is an interesting contrast. Pray in every spot or in every place, lifting up holy hands without wrath. Why would he have to specify that? Why? Why? why what's the contrast there? What, wrath and prayer, lifting up holy hands without wrath. Is there a way to lift up holy hands with wrath? Uh, that's the question mark here. And then this second word, doubting, dialogismos. Um, the idea here, 14 times in the New Testament, it literally means a balancing of accounts or, or debate or an argument. So the idea of kind of point-counterpoint type idea and trying to balance the point-counterpoint. Um, nine times it's, it's translated thought in the New Testament, but it's, almost, uh, it's usually paired with evil, so like evil thoughts. Um, two times it's translated doubt, one time disputing, one time imagination, one time reasoning. So this idea here, dialogismos, now uh, logizomai is the idea of to, to think through or to reckon. Dia is through, so to reckon through. That's the idea of kind of counting the... Uh, uh, um, uh, uh, accounting for or, or debating or arguing, kind of talking through something together. Sort of the idea there. So without wrath, without natural passion, and without doubting. So the flavor of the term in the New Testament is a way of thinking which is perhaps contentious or competitive. Comparing, contending, disputing. So a couple possible meanings here. First, the prayers of the men were characterized by wrath and doubting. Now, um, we say angry prayers are contentious prayers. One commentator said that maybe all they were basically doing was praying in precatory prayers. That they were just praying in anger against people all the time. Smite this person, smite this person, smite this person, kill that guy, uh, destroy this person, make that person. You know, uh, uh, that sort of an idea. Um, perhaps. Now, if we actually broaden the idea of wrath and doubting to their more general Greek ideas, which is the reason why we don't generally do that is if the New Testament has a consistent way that it, transla- uh, that it, that it uses a word, even if that word is more broadly used outside of the New Testament, we are hesitant at least to go to that broader idea when God has constrained the word in his inspiration in a certain way. But it doesn't mean we can't necessarily do so. So maybe the idea of prayer without orge or dea logismos is that men aren't going to pray in a overt, like, like the Pharisees. Oh, Lord, thank you that I am not as this publican with, with, with a loud... Uh, um, uh, boisterous, natural passion type idea. Kind of how charismatics pray. If I could connect that dot. You know, the idea that they're being super draw attention to yourself sort of idea, Sam. Theatrical. Yeah. Yeah, or contentious. In other words, to make myself look better than the guy praying next to me. Right? Because you know when you sit in that group to pray, you feel a little bit, especially when you you just started, in the group praying, you feel a little bit self-conscious about your prayers. I don't sound as good as so-and-so. Uh, wow, I wish I could pray like them. Comparing yourself a little bit. So actually, the wrath and doubting could be that. The, the boisterous, flamboyant, or the kind of outdoing the person who just prayed next to me sort of way. And that would um, uh, work. Or this uh, uh, idea here. Lifting up your hands in wrath and doubting when together instead of lifting up your hands uh, without wrath and doubting together instead of, excuse me, lifting up your hands as opposed, let me, read, let me actually read what I wrote, as opposed to lifting up your hands in wrath or doubting when together, instead, lift up your hands in prayer with one another. Should be a comma there. And that idea, and I say I favor that, although the, the flamboyant prayer thing actually works really well also. Um, But this idea is certainly more so than the idea that the prayers were angry. The idea that in most places, 
men are bickering, arguing, fighting, one-upping one another, wrath and doubting. They're arguing with each other or they're, they're, they're fighting with each other. Instead of arguing with each other and fighting with each other, pray with each other. How about that? And I like that too. So either one of those ideas, kind of the flamboyant, flamboyant I'm trying to one-up you in the manner of my prayer, or the, we're, we're doing what men normally do, we're playing King of the Hill, we'll stop playing King of the Hill and pray together instead. Either one of those, I think, is, is good. The reason why I lean toward this one is because, again, in order to do the flamboyant prayer thing, you have to go outside of, with wrath, you have to go outside of the New Testament, and you have to go to classical Greek literature's use of, ra- of orge as meaning just natural overflowing passion. And uh, disputing is fine. So that's why I would lean toward stop fighting and start praying. But it, both of those are, are okay. I mean, I guess that one's okay too. I just, I don't know too many people that have angry prayers like that. Sam. Silly women laden with sin. Yep. Yeah, and it actually still is a big problem um, within. It's it's one of the reasons why there's so many <laughs> there's so many black marks on the church in our age. Whether that be in Southern Baptist Convention had a huge thing not too long ago. Um, uh, uh, Jack Shap just got out of prison not too long ago um, uh, from the whole thing in, in Hiles Anderson uh, many many years ago, where he uh, um, he took advantage of his his spiritual authority um, and. It is not an uncommon thing, especially to, to lure young women who have a very high respect for a man and to use that position of authority to take advantage of them. And one of those positions of authority is very much spiritual authority. And it's something that, that is, is a, a real problem and a real temptation. Uh, one of the reasons why you know, my my policy is to not be alone with a woman who's not my wife and then as a general rule I don't text with text or call with women my wife interacts with the women I interact with the men uh, that's all for those very reasons um, because not only is it a testimony issue but I would be foolish to think that I'm above those temptations because I'm not because I'm a man and I'm a human and so I, I have to guard myself as much as I have to guard testimony and everything else, right? And that is also a, a real case there. Now, in, and, and you bring up the comparison thing, and this is actually where we go with this, right? Um, is that we do have this in like manner also. However, what we would, uh, once again, and it's not to invalidate your point, but what we do see here is the way that Paul is expressing the women's modesty, it's definitely woman to woman, Right? Because men don't really care about the broidered hair and gold and wearing of pearls. Women do those things for the men in one sense or in certain settings, but it's not, it's, it's the overall aesthetic. Not necessarily, oh, you're wearing your, the pearls, unless you know, he bought them and he wants to see her wearing them, but, but it's the overall aesthetic that it creates. It's not so much the, the broidered hair or the wearing of pearls or whatnot. Um, but the woman-woman thing in the assembly is probably significantly more of what he's going on here, which means in the contrast, I would assume that whatever the top one is, it's man-to-man primarily. And then, of course, you'll have the natural overlap. And so in this case, 
Um, yeah, there, there's, there's the modesty male toward female, female toward male, and then there's the modesty one toward the other. And there must have been something happening in churches as it related to, and either the way in which they were praying to one-up one another or just the natural male machismo type idea of what these guys do is they, they, they you know, it's the natural, we fight, we, we, we dispute, that's, that's what we do. And instead, no, just, just pray. Pray instead. Um, a whole different, a whole different uh, biblical, a whole different definition of masculinity, to be sure. Um, no less real, though. So, if we allow these two ideas to be parallel, in the same way men lift up hands, again, to choral or to, to um, uh, elucidate or, or, or uh, um, uh, exaggerate their prayers, instead they should pray together, just lift up their hands to pray together. And the women, instead of adorning to choral, right, in the same idea, instead of adorning to choral, men might lift up their hands to choral, women might adorn to choral. Okay, men, now lift up your hands to pray. Women, adorn yourselves with good works. The clarity through contrast, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but in contrast, good works. So a shamefaced and a sober woman is one whose appearance and deportment, that would be the manner in which she presents herself, that's posture, face, um, appearance, the whole, the, whole, the whole package does not detract from, distract from, or otherwise hinder or override her reflection of godly virtues. What should emanate from a woman's deportment is not her external qualities, but her internal qualities. Not insignificant to a woman's efforts of external adornment is that she and her fellow sisters in Christ would not engage in adornment which lends itself to contention, and that should be or frustration among one another, but rather to mutual provocation unto godliness, virtue, and good works. And that's shamefacedness. I think I had one more slide that I added today that's not on there, but it was just more elaboration on the idea here. I think we've, we've hit it pretty well. Final thoughts, concerns, questions, disagreements on the idea of shamefacedness. So it's not for a modern reference that some of you may not even understand. It's not Handmaid's Tale type stuff. We're not talking about you can't show your face, you can't talk. We'll talk about silence next week. Uh, maybe not next week, but you know, we'll talk about silence next time. Um, that's, that's not the idea of shamefacedness. It's not, it's not that you are not allowed to be a normal human. It's that you are elevating virtue above appearance, virtue in appearance, virtue in deportment. And of course, it's not just for women, but in this case, as he's speaking of adornment, the adornment idea is definitely uh, one that he was focusing on with women. Okay, we'll stop there for this week.